So let's read that story from John chapter 21. It was after the resurrection. I'll begin reading in verse 1, and I'll read through 19. And we often stand, but we will not this morning because it's such a long reading and you guys are old. John 21, 1 through 19. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is also the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, who's called Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, well, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he'd taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So he's inviting them to breakfast. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which uh, Peter would glorify God. And then he said to Peter, follow me. Okay, well, this story is not only a charming encounter with Jesus, but I think it offers us rich insight if we dig into it, scratch under it, into what happens when we encounter the resurrected Jesus. And by the way, I believe that's exactly what's happened to many of us here this morning. I believe we have encountered the resurrected Jesus. Remember, if you know the story, then you know that to emotionally overwrought Mary Magdalene, Jesus showed himself gently with words of comfort at the tomb. To the pragmatic, doubting Thomas, Jesus offered his wounds for Thomas's inspection. To the forceful Paul, Jesus knocked him off his horse and then he overwhelmed him with a vision. 
even today the resurrected Jesus, is presenting himself to different ones of us in exactly the way we need to be approached. Through our emotions, or through a dream, or a vision, or through arguments and reason, or through the testimony of friends. The resurrected Jesus is presenting himself to you and I. And we've sensed him. Late at night, on a long drive somewhere, out looking at the stars in a worship setting, singing songs of praise during a Sunday morning lesson, in conversations with friends, we have sensed his realness. We've felt his presence. So what do we do with that experience? When we encounter the resurrected Jesus, what do we do? Last week on Easter Sunday, we talked about the reasons to believe in the resurrection. That sermon is online, and a manuscript for that sermon is online if you were not here and you would like to see it. We presented really three categories of witnesses that give us real reason to really believe in the real resurrection of the dead guy, Jesus Christ. We talked about early accounts. Some of the creeds that are quoted in the New Testament are, in effect, hymns or creeds that were said in the church and were widespread enough that these early believers all over Europe and the Middle East knew the creed. So it predated the writing of the the texts by perhaps decades. In fact, I said most scholars, and I'm including historians who are not believers, most scholars date these creeds to within a year of Jesus' actual death, too early for myth to have developed, early accounts. Then we talked about the empty tomb. You know, how do you explain the empty tomb? And then thirdly, we talked about eyewitnesses. These four accounts, for instance, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are eyewitnesses to Jesus. Now, you have heard uh, skeptics say, oh, the earliest one of those was written 30 years after Jesus. The latest one might have been 80 years, 70, 80 years after Jesus before it was in its final form. But I pointed out last week, you know, You've never had anybody doubt the veracity of the story of Alexander the Great, the great Grecian hero who conquered half of the known world. But the earliest witnesses to Alexander the Great are two to three hundred years after Alexander the Great. In fact, historians, if they end up with two corroborating witness accounts, they consider that a gold mine because most historical settings only have one. In Jesus' case, we have four And then a fifth one, if you count Paul, and Paul references 500 other people. He says in the text, many of whom are still alive, the eyewitnesses. So if it's true, so what? So what? If we can come to the point that we can believe it, how do we respond? If we encounter the resurrected Jesus. Well, when you encounter the resurrected Jesus, you have a choice to make. You can choose either to ignore it and to somehow minimize what's happened to you, or you can adjust your life to the new reality. When you encounter the resurrected Jesus, you can choose either to ignore it and to minimize what's happened to you, or you can adjust your life to the new reality. And I think Peter's encounter with Jesus models for us what adjusting to the new reality looks like. So if you're going to adjust your life to the new reality, then there are going to be three things that are true about you and from what I know of you all. These things are true of many of you, and others of you not yet. You're growing and learning in this area. So these are the three, and I've tried to 
make them all an R so they're easier to remember. So the first one is, if you're going to adjust your life to the new reality, you will pursue Jesus with reckless abandon. You will pursue Jesus with reckless abandon. It's interesting to look at the parallel between this incident in John chapter 21 and what happens to Peter in Luke chapter 5. So it's fascinating to look at Peter in John 21 versus Peter in Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, we have an incident where Peter has been fishing all night. And he hasn't caught anything. And he's tired, and he rows near to shore, and Jesus is there. And Jesus tells him to let down his nets again, and he hauls in a huge amount of fish. In John 21, Peter has been fishing all night, and he hasn't caught anything. And they're near to shore, and Jesus calls out and says, throw your nets on the other side, and they haul in a great haul of fish. In the Luke account, this is what Peter does. And I'm looking at Luke 5, verses 8 and 9. When Simon Peter saw this, the huge amount of fish he brings in, Luke 5, 8 and 9, he fell at Jesus' knees. And he said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. Okay, this is awesome. I've actually preached a sermon on that passage before. This is Peter recognizing that he is in the presence of something that he doesn't understand. But what we really have from Peter in Luke chapter 5 is the response of a superstitious man. It's a religious man who sees something amazing and he falls down and he wants to recognize it. He wants to, he's overwhelmed by it. He wants to admire it. But as we said last week, Jesus doesn't want admirers. He wants followers. He wants people that will pursue him with reckless abandon. Jesus doesn't want religion. He wants a relationship. We've said that many times here on Sunday morning at Gateway. Now, religion, the practice of a certain kind of ritual, can facilitate a relationship, especially a relationship with God. I mean, Diane and I have rituals. We have things that we practice in our relationship, cute things that we say to one another that you're not privy to. But... The ritual cannot be the substance. The substance is how I feel about Diane and my pursuit of her in response to my feeling about her. Religion cannot replace a relationship with God. Do you think Diane would rather that I love her out of duty or out of genuine emotion and genuine appreciation? Would Diane rather know that I was hanging out with her because I had written in my to-do list, got to hang out with Diane for at least 45 minutes today? I mean, I think if Diane saw that on my to-do list, she might be, depending on our relationship, she might be offended. She certainly wouldn't feel overwhelmed with my love for her. I think Diane wants a genuine relationship, and God is a personal being who longs not for some kind of religious or superstitious connection with him, but a real relationship. And in John 21, when Peter realizes that the speaker is Jesus, he jumps out of the boat. He can't stand it. He has to go see him. He doesn't wait for the boat to be... There's all the fish there. Peter wants the fish. 
but he grabs his outer garment, wraps it around himself, leaps into the water, and gets to Jesus as quickly as he can. When you have an encounter with the risen Jesus, you have an extreme reaction. In Peter's case, he pursues Jesus. He wants to be next to Jesus. He pursues him with reckless abandon. Some of you have heard me tell this story over the years, and those of you who have done premarital counseling with Diane and I, you probably have heard Diane talk about this with a twinkle in her eye. But two years after Diane and I had started dating, we'd been dating for a couple of years, I was in Boston, Massachusetts, going to school, and Diane was still in North Carolina. And I felt like we just couldn't continue to pursue this relationship. So I broke up with Diane. In fact, there were a group of friends that Diane had who started the I Hate Eddie Club. So this was before the days of cell phone and Facebook. And Diane and I did not communicate with one another for six months. Completely broken up. I was trying my darndest for this to be over. But I was just completely preoccupied. That's all I thought about. And all day I was thinking about Diane. And I'm supposed to have been broken up with her. Anyway, after six months I decided that I would go back to North Carolina and see if we could reconnect. When I got back to North Carolina and got together with Diane, seriously, there was just something strikingly different about her. I don't want to be too weird and ooey-gooey, but she almost glowed. What Diane had been doing for six months is leaning heavily into Jesus. She had realized that our relationship had become her foundation. It had become her hope. It had become the thing that she leaned into. And when I ended the relationship, talk about a slap in the face, she did a lot better. So she got healthier, she felt better, she just got really deeply connected to God. And I love to hear her talk about this, how connected she got to God because I broke up with her. And she she leaned into Jesus and she pursued him with reckless abandon. And I could see it. I could tell it about her in our conversations together. When we have an encounter with the risen Jesus, then many of us, adjust our lives to the new reality, and we begin pursuing him with reckless abandon. Now, this is really important. I want you to know that this and the other two things that I'm going to talk about this morning that Peter, obviously true of Peter's life, are themes for this period of Peter's life. This is not prescriptive. I'm not giving you something to do this morning. I'm not telling you to go out and pursue Jesus with reckless abandon. This is descriptive. This is what Peter did. And it's what, frankly, it's what many of you have done and are doing. That's part of the reason you're here this morning. You know, increasingly in droves, our culture is leaning away from church. Increasingly, our culture in larger and larger percentages, strikingly large percentages just over the time that I've lived in Northern Virginia. And it's not just Northern Virginia. It's it's the rest of the country. Our country is leaning against church. People are choosing not to go anymore, but for some reason, you chose to come. And it's not even Easter. Or maybe you came for the banana split, but other than that, (laughs) you chose to come today. It may have been habitual, you might not have thought much about it, but part of that is because you, you are the kind of person who has adjusted your life to the new reality. And you want to pursue Him. That's what Peter did. He wrapped up that outer garment. He 
He jumped in the water as quick as he could, forgot everything else. I want you to know, even though it's not prescriptive, it can be diagnostic, though. This, this can be part of how we analyze ourselves. So, how is my pursuit of Jesus lately? I'm feeling so disconnected from myself. I'm feeling at odds with my life. I'm not connected to purpose. I'm, there's not a flow to my life. Am I pursuing Jesus with reckless abandon? It can be diagnostic, but it's not, I'm not giving you something to do. This is descriptive. So, if we adjust our lives to the new reality, the first thing that will be true about us is that we will pursue Jesus with reckless abandon. We will. Secondly, if we adjust our lives to the new reality, there is a dead guy who's now walking around. What? Okay, hold on. What? All right, I'm sorry. What? Then we will adjust our lives to that new reality when we encounter that. And the second thing we'll do is that we will allow ourselves to be led to real repentance. To real repentance. So there's reckless abandon and there's real repentance. Repentance translates a fancy word from the Greek New Testament that literally meant go the other direction. But it began to be used, even before the New Testament, it began to be used in religious contexts. And so it, it took on a spiritual significance. But the word originally meant I'm walking this way. Wait, I'm going the wrong direction. I'm going to turn around instead and go this way. If we adjust our lives to the new reality, we will allow ourselves to be led to real repentance. I say it that way. I use that kind of language because real repentance only happens under his leadership. I'm going to repeat that for dramatic effect. Real repentance only happens under his leadership. Real repentance only happens because of God's intervention in our lives. Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. That's a synonym virtually for God's grace. It's God's grace. It's God's gracious encounter with us that leads us to repentance. So all we have to do in response to that is to allow it to happen. To allow ourselves to be led into repentance because that's where he's leading us. He's leading us into brokenness. He's leading ever deeper, larger, more secret, more special, more intimate places of our lives. He's leading us deeper and deeper into turning our life around and going in a different direction and giving it to him. When we're left to our own devices without his intervention, we'll certainly feel shame. We might even apologize. We might be sorry, but we will not really repent. Look, I don't need to explain it. You know the difference. You've been in, most of you, you've been in an intense relational conflict with someone, and they have been wrong. For some of you, you think that's all of your conflict, but they have been wrong, and they have needed to come to you and make restitution. They have needed to repent. Well, you have heard their apology. You've actually seen sorrow, but you've known something was missing. Real repentance only happens under his direction. So look at what Jesus does in this interaction with Peter. Jesus leads Peter to real repentance. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. Jesus makes Peter take responsibility for what he's done. Before I explain that, let's just pause for a second and recognize that this taking responsibility for what we've done is part and parcel. It's the most significant part of genuine repentance. 
It is, in fact, Paul and Lee and Hattershell have led for years a Christian recovery ministry that's now spread throughout Northern Virginia. They'll be starting it again at Gateway here in uh, subsequent months, so keep your eyes and ears open for that. It's an incredible model for a continually renewing and repenting lifestyle, a recovering lifestyle. But it's borrowed from Alcoholics Anonymous process. And you may know enough of this process to know that early, one of the early steps in the recovery process is to sit down and take an account of your life. Really take an account of your life. Really where you are. And really what you've done. Be specific as you can. This is an exercise in allowing ourselves to be led into real repentance, to take full responsibility. So notice this, don't miss this. Three times Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? I know you got it. These guys helped us see it. It's striking and I don't think it's accidental that three times Peter betrayed Jesus. And did you notice that this whole exchange between Jesus and Peter happens around a fire? And do you remember where Peter first betrayed Jesus? It was around a fire when he finally said, I never knew him and he cursed in the process. And through this, Jesus takes Peter. So not only is he recalling this in Peter's mind, but takes Peter to the motivation under his action and not just the action itself. Say that again. Jesus drives Peter to the motivation under his action and not just the action itself. Look at what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say, well, are you ever going to lie again, Peter? Peter, Peter, are you ever going to betray me? No, instead, what Jesus says to Peter is, in effect, look, you know, through this process, what you demonstrated, Peter, is that you don't love me. I think of this (laughs) in light of my own parenting and I just think of how many times you know I probably used shame as a weapon and I ask one of those rhetorical questions are you ever going to disobey your mother again you know are you ever going to grab your brother Dawson by the hair and drag him down the steps again are you ever going to do that again instead Jesus doesn't point the accusing shaming finger at Peter, but he drives Peter to what really drives Peter's betrayal and disobedience. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Peter. Remember, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Peter. Third time. Do you love me? Remember? Three times? Sound familiar? Around a fire? You know all things, Lord. Look, you know that I love you. I think in the process, Jesus recognizes that Peter's gotten it. Now, this isn't shame. This is a deep sorrow, but combined with hope. You know, that's one of the differences between real repentance and shame or guilt. Real repentance, it doesn't feel any better, and yet it's ringed with hope. There's healing in it. We're going somewhere through it. We will allow ourselves to be led to real repentance if we are adjusting our lives to the new reality. Third thing that's going to be true of us, I think it's strikingly obvious in in this encounter, is if we're going to adjust our lives to the new reality, then we'll submit ourselves to being radical followers. We will submit ourselves to radical followership. 
real repentance and, and radical followership. We did a series of lessons that I've heard a number of you refer to over the subsequent months, but we did a number of lessons here on Sunday morning at Gateway in the fall we called All In. It was just about being all in with God. All in in our followership of Jesus. This is what adjusting to the new reality will be. It will be a radical followership. I think of uh, my friend Jesse Rudy. Uh, Jesse was here for a couple of weeks. Many of you know him. Jesse is a UVA-trained lawyer. Jesse had a job in corporate law firm here in the D.C. area and really bright, obviously, on his way. And uh, Jesse left all of that to work for International Justice Mission in Africa, pursuing injustice around the world. He's moving in June, his family, to the Philippines to pursue sex trafficking in the Philippines. Because Jesse has adjusted his life to the new reality. And he couldn't be the same after it. He couldn't be the same after an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And that informed the entire direction of his life. I think about my good friend, Ina York. Some of you know Ina. Ina was a school teacher in Maine and then in Rhode Island. Ina was a very gifted school teacher and in fact had become the uh, statewide expert on reading problems in first and second grade. She would do trainings around the state. At the top of her profession, she goes on a mission trip to the Dominican Republic. And because she's living her life in the new reality, she allows real repentance as a process in her life. And that real repentance, that real repentance keeps her constantly soft to radical followership. So Ina takes a year leave of absence from her school, a year leave of absence, and stays in the Dominican Republic and works down there for this organization that she's been affiliated with. And while she's there, she stumbles into contact with a village and she feels like this is what I was made for. And so Ina leaves her life in the United States, quits her job, sells all of her possessions, and moves her life to the Dominican Republic to work with a small village back in the mountains of the Dominican Republic among a people who the Dominican Republic do not consider that they don't exist. I think of my good friend Rob Showers. Rob isn't here this morning. I texted Rob this morning. I told him I was going to use him as an example. I'm shocked he didn't come. Rob is also a lawyer, and you know there are a lot of bad stories and jokes about lawyers, and that is for good reason. But Rob could have pursued a career in uh, corporate law in an area like Washington, D.C., or in his real home, which is North Carolina. And instead, Rob pursued his calling and has spent much of his career representing nonprofits and churches, which is not the most lucrative way to do law. Those folks don't pay as much, and sometimes... Uh, they don't pay at all. Let me add that I may be the only person I know who is more naturally ungenerous than Rob. And yet, here is Rob giving away his time and his expertise to organizations that can't pay him a fraction. of. I mean, Rob does well. But he gives his time and energy to organizations that can't pay a fraction of 
what he could be making, and this is because Rob lives in a process of pursuing Jesus with reckless abandon, and he's allowed his life to be led by radical repentance, and when he begins to go in the wrong direction, which is not infrequent with Rob, Jesus turns him around, and he stays soft to that. And he has been allowed, he's been helped, he's been assisted in being a radical follower. I think of my good friend Jan Zacharias, who came into mind in Diane's life in her home a few years ago, clueless. His life has completely turned in a different direction. He's a 104-year-old man who's trying to figure out what he wants to do when he grows up because his life has been so radically touched and altered because of an encounter with the risen Jesus. And he has uh, slowly over time adjusted his life to the new reality because it was striking about Jan and his journey from the very beginning, how open he was to the process of real repentance. And that has shown itself in the ministry that flows out of Jan's life. Many of you have been the recipient of it. And even uh, Jan uh, changing careers and deciding that he wants to be in a helping profession. I don't know if anybody's told you, Jan, but you can't make as much money in a helping profession as you can in development. I think of my good friend, Jenny Newman. Jenny is actually Diane's sister who um, spent a number of years clueless. Diane's youngest sister who may have been, they have a delightful, wonderful family. But if anyone was the black sheep in the family, it might have been Jenny. And Jenny had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And charismatic Episcopal Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Over the years, the times that Jenny would call our house, I know, Jenny, you could tell, I know Jenny was on the other end begging, praying that Diane would answer the phone because she had no idea what to do with me. <laughs> I'm this minister and what do I say to Ed? I don't know. What, I don't even know how to make conversation with him because he eat like the rest of us. What's the deal? And after Jenny has this encounter with the resurrected Jesus, it's unbelievable the way Jenny adjusted her life to the new reality. And now the first few times that Jenny called on the phone, she and I talked for 45 minutes. Well, tell me about that. Can I, I, well, how does it work when she's just got questions and she's just reckless abandoned and real repentance and most importantly, radical followership, so much so that Jenny now leads a small prayer ministry in her city. Now, I say a small prayer ministry because at different times there are moving parts and uh, she just prays with a group of women and I want you to know their impact has been <laughs> it's incredible. They've had people from all over the country, all over the world, hear about their group and come to their town and want to, just want to go pray with these women. And that's what they do. These people will come and they'll just go. Or somebody will hear about this group and want to get prayed for by these women and they go and these women pray for them and stuff happens. And they don't counsel them, they just pray over them. And just wild God stuff happens. Look, the resurrection is not a party trick. The resurrection is a new reality. This is not like seeing David Blaine. Have y'all seen David Blaine, uh, that weird magician who does these unbelievable card tricks? You know, and it's incredible. When there's a David Blaine special on, I watch it. I mean, he does street magic. So David Blaine will walk up to someone. I actually saw him do this. This is a group of young guys. He walks up to someone, you know, hey, I think they recognize him. There's a camera there, so they want to be on camera. So he holds out these cards. He says, you know, they've been over playing basketball. They come over, David Blaine says, hey, pick a card. You know, don't let me know what it is. And so blah, blah, blah. And so then he does the thing with the cards. And then he says, well, why don't you do it? 
So they take the cards and they do this and they hand it back to him. And he does this and he's going through and he's, is that your card? And that's all a show, of course. Is that your card? No. And they're laughing. Is that your card? No. We the ones that stumped David Blaine. Is that your card? No. Is that your, no. Is that your card? Huh. Well, what is that envelope in your pocket? God doesn't know he's got an envelope in his pocket. What? It's sealed. It's got his name on it. He opens it up. It's his card. Are you kidding me? I can't figure out how David Blaine does half the stuff. That, I can't figure out how he does any of the stuff that he does. The resurrection is not a party trick. This is not David Blaine. Sleight of hand. The resurrection is like taking the blue pill. Or is it the red pill? I can't remember. In the Matrix. It's the red one. So you remember the Matrix? Those of you who've seen it, I'm sorry, spoiler alert, but if since 1999, if you haven't seen it, you're not going to see it now. Morpheus has got two pills in his hand, right? You take this and you'll just go back to your normal life. But if you take this one, you're going to wake up and you'll see the new reality. And he takes it. He takes the red one. And he wakes up in a new reality. And here's the deal with that. Powerful illustration, really. What he realizes is that his entire life, as he knew it before, was an illusion. He was living in the matrix. Now his eyes are opened. That's why Paul prays, open up my eyes. Open the eyes of our heart. That's why we sing that. That's that song we sang this morning. Open up our eyes. Surround us with your light, O Lord. And his eyes are opened. And he sees a whole new reality. And now he's got to learn to live in what they call in the matrix, the real world. And that's what you and I do. When we encounter the resurrected Jesus, we've got to adjust our sight and our heart and our will to the new reality. That means pursuing Jesus with reckless abandon. That means allowing ourselves to be led to real repentance. And that means radical followership. That means we might end up like Jesse Rudy one day. Or it means that we might end up like Jenny Newman. Leading a prayer ministry that people in our area know about and others think we're weird. I think there are three possibilities for us this morning. Possibility number one is that you may not have ever had an experience, a real encounter with the risen Jesus. And I pray that you will. He's longing to touch And I pray that it would be this morning. When you do, it's dramatic. You're forced to make a choice. I love Tim Keller's explanation of this. Just how dramatic it is to encounter the real and living God. Tim Keller says, imagine dressing up like a police officer and impersonating a police officer. It could be a lot of fun. You might be able to write some tickets and (laughs) you you could goof on people that you don't know and take advantage of them. It's awesome. Unless, you know, the, the... if you're impersonating a police officer, it, it's, it's actually terrific. That you can run red lights. But the one thing you don't want to happen, right, is run into a real police officer. That's what happens for you and I when we have an encounter with the risen Jesus. Because we've been, all of us have been involved in a deeply held self-salvation project. And the one thing that we don't want to happen is to be confronted with the real Savior. I pray that you'd have an encounter with the risen Jesus if you haven't. Second possibility is that you've had an encounter with the risen Jesus and you have found a way to ignore it. Through busyness, 
or perhaps you've rewritten your own history. No, that wasn't the way I really, it's not accurate. And you've rewritten your own experience. I don't want you to notice what Peter's doing at the beginning of this passage. He's back fishing. <laughs> He's, what do I do now? He's, so he just goes back to life as he knows it. Some of us are back at our lives as if nothing was different. And after a while, it isn't. Some of us go back to our lives as if nothing is different. And after a while, it isn't. Third possibility is that you're pursuing Jesus with reckless abandon. And you're allowing yourself to be led to repentance. And you're submitting yourself to following him. That's the third possibility. And I know that's true for many of you this morning. And I, with you, celebrate that reality. I welcome God's activity of leading me into repentance. Well, welcome might be too strong a word, but I know the good that's on the other end of it. And, and I want to be a radical follower. Here's the thing. There is no... I don't see anybody who's completely strange to Gateway this morning. So you and I know that we're in the process of a uh, building campaign here at Gateway. We're going to be building on a, our property uh, over the next two and a half years. And there's a really strong chance that when we clear ground over there and uh, we put up a big sign that says, coming soon, Gateway Community Church, there's a picture of what our building is going to look like. There's a really good chance that that will create some energy here for you and I. But there's, there's also a really good chance that we'll begin to have people come visit us and want to see what's happening. And then at a certain point, they'll finish over there and we'll be doing last-minute touch-ups and then Sunday morning will come and we'll go over and put a key in the door and we'll walk in. And we'll have a, we'll have a great celebration service. And I suspect at that point, you and I need to be ready because I suspect that quite a few people in our area are going to want to come see what's going on in our new building. And it'll be great. There'll be a lot of energy. There is absolutely no chance. We have absolutely no chance in making a difference in those people's lives. We have no chance at having an impact on this area. We won't be able to do anything but draw a crowd unless we're pursuing Jesus with reckless abandon, unless we are allowing ourselves to be led into real repentance, and unless you and I are practicing radical followership. You know what? If we're practicing radical followership, then one of you is going to start a prayer ministry that's going to have an impact over this whole area. And four more of you are going to start just counseling ministries. We won't even call it that. But that's what it'll be. And several of you are going to have ministries of helps and marriage mentoring. It's just going to happen because that's where Jesus is leading us. And if we're not radically following Him, then we're going to draw a crowd and we'll make no difference. And I, for one, don't want to be part of that. But I don't think that's what's going to happen because there are a lot of people in this room who have had an encounter with the risen Jesus. And this morning, hear me reminding you 
and myself of that. Let's pray. Father, hear your followers pray this morning. And we pray today as uh, you taught us to pray, Jesus. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.